0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Before we get started, I want to tell you about a new show you should also check out. If you have strong political opinions like I do, you've probably wound up debating issues with people you love. These days, political disagreements are especially fraught because they feel really personal. In a new show called I Love You But I Hate Your Politics... Therapist Jeannie Safer helps couples and friends who care about each other but can't seem to see eye-to-eye on political issues. Find I Love You But I Hate Your Politics wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. Hi, and welcome back to Women Belong in the House. Human rights are women's rights, and women's rights are human rights once and for all. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. There's a record number of women running for office this year. We're telling their stories. We're also digging into why there are fewer women in office and why often women don't want to run. Throughout the season, we've talked about the fact that women and more diverse candidates generally bring new perspectives that can create better policy. That diversity isn't just based on gender or race. It stems from all the facets of identity that make us who we are. This week, we're telling the story of another woman who brings a unique perspective to the table. She also knows firsthand how this election feels different as a candidate. She ran and lost in 2016, and she's back for a rematch. As previously discussed on this show, women tend to run for office less. When they do run, they actually win at similar rates in comparable races. But it's stickier for women to make the decision to throw their hats in the ring. Once a candidate loses, that decision-making process has to happen all over again. Part of what holds women back from running is the fact that while men tend to overvalue their accomplishments, women more often disregard their qualifications for political and other leadership roles. That creates a confidence gap that affects women as young as those in high school and permeates the world of politics and business. Kathleen Dolan told me more. She's a professor and the chair
2: of the political science department at the
1: University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee.
2: It is an empirical fact that when women run for office, they win at just about exactly the same rates as do men. One of the primary problems with regard to women running for office or standing as candidates is actually a set of personal attitudes or sort of psychological tendencies. There's some excellent work by Jennifer Lawless and Richard Fox. Men over-inflate their own characteristics and qualities and are much more likely to see themselves as viable political candidates, where similarly situated women undervalue their own criteria and characteristics and say that they couldn't possibly be good enough to be candidates. So you can take two people who are lawyers with advanced education and great personal experience and qualifications, and one of those people will not think she's good enough to run for office. Now, that is, you know, a generalization they found in data interviewing thousands and thousands of people. So there certainly are women who appropriately evaluate themselves and see themselves as good enough. But lots of women don't do that. And so women's candidacies is suppressed in some ways, even before they start. There are really two places where it could come. You know, one is biology. I mean, some people would argue that there may be innate qualities of men and women. I don't particularly myself buy much into that. The other path is socialization, is what we teach boys and girls and women and men in our society and what we teach them from the very beginning. And even though we have changed a lot as a political society, a lot of our political socialization, right, is still traditional. There's still a focus on politics as a man's world or a man's game. And when young girls look at politics, they still see that. I mean, Congress is 20 percent female, but that means it's 80 percent male. Lawless and Fox have a more recent book. They decided to try to look and see where these gender gaps in ambition might start. And so they did this big study of high school and college students in the United States. And they found in the high school students that this gendered ambition gap already existed. So their pessimistic take is it's happening quite early in the lives of young boys and young girls.
1: Here's Joe Piazza. She's a political journalist and the author of a new novel about a woman running for office called Charlotte
0: Walsh Likes to Win. Well, we know that there's a confidence gap for women when it comes to running for office, that women often feel like they're not qualified enough for a job because women want to be 100% qualified for anything that they do. Whereas we know that men, if they have about 20% of the qualifications are like, you know what, I'll throw my hat in the ring. And What happens when a woman loses a race is that that lack of confidence there, that confidence gap is then validated. So it's very hard for a woman to decide to run again because she's like, look, I was nervous about getting in. The voters proved to me that I did not have these qualifications. And I think women tend to internalize that a lot more. But we also know it's not just the women themselves. It's that campaign managers and the national and local political establishment tend to see a woman who has run and not won kind of as a um, failed racehorse It's both an internal battle for women and an external one. Our candidate of the week has pushed well beyond that confidence
1: gap in both the business and political realms.
3: This is Angie Craig. I'm running in Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District, and I am 46 years old.
1: Angie was born in rural Arkansas in 1972, 56 years after the first woman, Jeanette Rankin, was elected to Congress and 52 years after women won the right to vote.
3: Well, it's funny, when you grow up, your life is just the life that you know, right? So, I think we lived in nine different places growing up. Most of them were mobile home parks. I grew up with a great childhood. I had lots of love around me, but we didn't have a lot of stuff. But I always knew that I was loved and I had a mother who had a lot of aspiration. And she passed that on to me through her example my mom went to 4 different colleges over 9 years to get her college degree and become a teacher. So My childhood was filled with a mother that I remember at the kitchen table studying more than I remember her at the oven or the stove. We didn't actually know that we were not rich because we felt just such massive love around us. My father wasn't there much after I was nine years old. And, of course, that was painful, especially for me, because I was the oldest and Certainly could remember him being around more. But my grandmother moved three doors down after my dad left. I remember it as aspirational and just extraordinary, these two women who came together to make sure that my brother and sister and I were going to be okay and that we would all have a good life. So it's fascinating what you take from a childhood, and I take nothing but positive from mine.
1: The challenges that Angie faced in childhood helped to form her political
3: perspective
1: and to drive her beliefs in the issues that are now at the front of her campaign.
3: At times, there was food insecurity. I remember being on free and reduced lunch. You know, as I think back, there was definitely housing insecurity as we kind of moved around from place to place and some rented apartments that were uh, not really inhabitable. And so I certainly think that it shaped me. The real way it shaped me, now that I've been so fortunate, my wife Cheryl and I, we have four sons, and I've had this amazing career in business, and I, I know how lucky I've been to have worked my way from the mobile home park, through college to get my own college degree. It really shouldn't matter how much money you're born into in this country. If you're willing to work hard, if you're willing to sacrifice, then this country ought to be available to you. And I think as I look at you know the policies that I support, like moving toward universal health care, I grew up for a part of my life, at least, without access to health insurance in my own family. And so there's absolutely no doubt that how I grew up and the struggles my own family faced impact the way I think about good policy in this country.
1: Angie's family wasn't always focused on politics though her mom's activism could, at one point, be heard across the state of Arkansas.
3: My mom was a teacher, so it's interesting. She wasn't really overtly political, with the exception of one thing I remember really, really well. When we grew up, there was a certain governor in the state of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, and he passed some teacher testing reforms. And I remember this vividly because my mom... Her own personal story is she was an aspiring country music artist when she got pregnant with me and then married my dad and had two more kids and dropped out of school and that sort of thing. But my mom went back to the guitar and wrote this song, which seems so funny now. It was called The Teacher Test, which was then played on the radio throughout the state. And I remember her being very proud of that resistance moment. But other than that, my family was not that political. We didn't talk about national politics or anything like that at the kitchen table. Frankly, when folks are just struggling to pay the bills and feed their kids and that sort of thing, it's the moment where now that I'm an adult, I know that you should be the most engaged in politics. But, you know, coming from a family that faced that, it's sort of the time when people feel like they don't have time to pay attention to politics. And that's when they need good government the most. Angie
1: doesn't fit the stereotype of a politician for a variety of reasons. She's a woman, she's part of the LGBTQ community, and she doesn't come from money. That initially made her turn away from politics.
3: Honestly, I think I probably always wanted to go into politics, but I was a 17-year-old lesbian coming out in Arkansas. So you can do the math on how well that was going to go for me to be involved in elected service 30 years ago. I don't know if I consciously did it, but instead I decided I would join the fourth estate, right, holding politicians accountable as a journalist. So I joined the student newspaper at the University of Memphis almost upon stepping onto the campus. People asked me, you know, what were you involved in in college? And the truth is I spent just about my entire college career in the basement of a college newsroom. I was considering law school when I Ended up doing some freelance writing inside a medical technology company, and I was really drawn to healthcare and to the idea that we really could help a lot of people.
1: While Angie's sexual orientation initially set her on a path outside of being a career politician, the challenges she faced because of that part of her identity drove her to make a difference. Politics is personal especially when the laws enacted by
3: others threaten one's family. I had to fight for the right to adopt my son Joshua. A court in Tennessee wondered out loud all the way up to the Tennessee Supreme Court whether a child should be adopted by two women. Or, you know, in this case, it was actually by a lesbian because it was illegal for two women to adopt. And so I spent my mid-20s fighting for the right to adopt our son Joshua. That was probably the most consequential experience of my life. Clearly it was a story of, you know, waking up every single day for three years not knowing whether the beautiful, beautiful child that you're raising is going to be in your arms to put to bed that night. And we won, so it was a happy story. Joshua is the test case in Tennessee for a gay person's right to adopt a child. But the impact on me, probably, and I I think I only realized this later, As a woman in business, I thought I could do anything that anyone else in that business could do. And I was pitching senior leadership to put me on the executive team when I was 29 years old. And I was on my first executive team when I was 29 years old. And I served since I was 29 on the senior executive team of a major Fortune 500 company. So normally I was one of two women on that executive team. The reason I mention that is because I think the experience with Josh made me unafraid. There is nothing, nothing, not running for Congress, nothing else that would put more fear in a mother than the idea of possibly losing your child. No matter what happens in my life from here forward, there'll never be anything harder than that experience absent actually losing a child. And so for me, I think it made me a risk taker. It made me unafraid to fail. You know, if there's one thing that I could do for women, and not just in politics, but in business and in life, it's to say to them, be unafraid to fail. It's okay to fail. Be unafraid to do it.
1: Angie's family structure came into question again in 2008.
3: I, too, sat with tears streaming down my face watching President-elect Barack Obama. But remember, that was the same night that in California, Proposition 8 passed. This proposition uh, has put California in the spotlight uh, nationwide, and it appears that this is gonna happen, which this morning throws into question those 16,000 or so same-sex marriages that were estimated to have happened since uh, they started performing those. That was only a few years ago, a decade ago. And my wife and I were one of the couples that had married before Proposition 8 passed. And we didn't know that night whether our marriage in California would actually be legitimate after Proposition 8 passed. So I'm celebrating Barack Obama winning, and at the same time, I'm mourning the fact that my own marriage may not be valid. That's when my whole life is, you know, you push forward as hard as you can knowing that at times we're going to take a few steps back. And when we do take those steps back, you know what we do? We regather ourselves and we gather new friends and new allies, and then we push forward. And I have to believe that this time in this country is exactly that, because to keep fighting, you've got to believe that tomorrow's going to be better.
1: As an executive at St. Jude's, Angie found herself in a position to take action to protect families like her own. She dipped her toe into political leadership through her role as a leader
3: in the private sector. Speed forward, and I'm in Minnesota. We're in the middle of the fight over marriage equality. And this was the 2011-2012 time frame. And I'm now the head of HR for a Fortune 500 company. And I could do something. I could impact. And so the company that I worked for, St. Jude Medical, we were the first company that opposed at the time a constitutional amendment that would have banned same-sex marriage in the state. of Minnesota, not on the grounds of equality, but on the grounds of this is really going to prevent us from bringing top talent to Minnesota. Prior to that, I had served on the board of an organization called Women Winning, which put a lot of women into office here in Minnesota. That was where I thought my political contribution was going to be. And after the marriage equality fight, I reflected on how many families' lives, including my own family, would be forever changed by having all the laws and rights and access that every other family had. And of course, my wife Cheryl and I, we have four boys. And that was really important to us, to be recognized truly as a family with all the same rights and privileges. So I wanted to spend the rest of my life making the biggest difference I could for all families. For me, that is the analogy that I want to take into Congress. I'm certainly going to listen to folks who don't agree with me, and I've certainly had to even in that own battle. Uh, We got to A few uh, backlash calls, and they would be forwarded directly to me. And is it easy to hear someone on the other line tell you that they don't support your company's decision to support families like mine? Absolutely not, but I always treated those individuals with respect. The fact that I belong to a family that happened to be composed of two moms and have four children never came up. But it's important to know where the country is on these issues, even though you may not agree with that individual. But I think if you just keep pressing forward, that's what I've always said. People ask me all the time, why would you want to be in politics right now? Look at, you know, congressional Republicans trying to take away America's health care. Look at congressional Republicans lighting a match to income inequality with their tax bill in this country. Why do you want to do this? This is, you know, beating your head up against a wall. That's pretty much been my whole life where I've had to fight and you don't always win.
1: Her rise in the corporate world means Angie's already faced and overcome the confidence gap that can hold women back. That's on top of structural barriers that can impede women's progress. The public and private spheres are, in some ways, moving in tandem towards what may be a more equitable future. Here's Kathleen Dolan again.
2: Politics has its own particular structures and norms and pathways. But it isn't fundamentally different from most any of the other industries in the United States. I mean, it is in many ways an occupational workplace like many others. So, you know, I mean, I'm 55 years old. And when I was young, when I was, you know, 10, 12 years old, I would read the newspaper and the want ads were segregated. You know, there were jobs that listed as jobs for women. And then there was a separate set of categories of jobs listed for men. And so that was... Forty years ago, we were still in that very segregated world, you know, as women's education advances, as their occupational opportunities advance, as culture changes. Again, you know, step by step, inch by inch, women's opportunities change. And again, it's incremental. It's not as fast as many people would like. Hopefully it's moving in the right direction. Politics is not fundamentally different from many other aspects of society in its representation and opportunities for women. Joe Piazza talked about that, too.
0: As we're seeing the private sector improve, as we're seeing more women entering positions of power and executive positions in the private sector, we'll see more women running for public office. But then we also have to make sure that we're actually seeing those women. We have to make sure that the media is covering those women the same way that they cover male candidates. And we have to make sure that we're seeing those women shown in popular culture as well. We have to see them in books, we have to see them in TV, we have to see them in movies. We have to normalize women as ambitious leaders across the board. And that's something that Americans just have not done. We lag behind the majority of developed countries when it comes to electing women and when it comes to showcasing powerful women in our media and pop culture.
1: Claire Bresnahan-English is the former executive director of She Should Run, a nonpartisan organization that aims to expand the talent pool of women running for office. Now, Claire is the project director for Talk to Jess, a strategy firm that advises global brands on representation and inclusion.
4: There is absolutely work to be done in both sectors, right? The public and the private sector. And I had dedicated the first major portions of my career to public sector, but I wanted to switch to the private sector knowing that that's the places where most women are employed. If most of women in America are facing sexism and sending different types of barriers in the sense of belonging and inclusion in the workforce, I wanted to be able to start to do that work. And what I've seen in terms of both sectors is that there's still a lot of work to be done.
1: Angie decided that she wanted to get into politics as a way of having an impact on families. She stepped up to RUN in 2016, and lost in one of the closest elections in the country.
3: In 2016, I ran the third closest race in the country. I lost by 1.8%. And remember, we haven't held this seat in 24 years. So folks over here aren't used to voting for a Democrat. And Minnesota has only had five women elected in the history of Minnesota to federal office. And one of them was Michelle Bachman. So let me just leave that out there.
1: Deciding to run again is agreeing to give another two years of your life to the cause. And that's after losing is obviously extremely discouraging.
3: It's literally two years of your life each time. You put your whole heart into this. And for me, it wasn't so much losing. You know, I've already won. I mean, I grew up in a mobile home park and made this incredibly successful career in business and have a wife and four beautiful boys that are just amazing human beings. So it wasn't so much losing. I struggled after that election with the fact that I had let down the people of this congressional district. It mattered to me. And so the one thing I had to do to run again was to know that I could win. And so that's what keeps me going every single day is that I want to represent the people of this district because they deserve it, because they've been working for 20 years for this. And, you know, for me, it's about the family in Zumbro Falls who pays $24,000 a year for their health care and has a $10,000 deductible. For me, it's about... The moms at the bingo hall that I played at two weeks ago on a Sunday afternoon because they're fighting for their kids who are in what we call extra education programs. One of our sons, too, has some learning challenges, and it's about the family who lost their son to an opioid addiction. That's what it's about for me, and that's why I want to represent this district in Congress. It's because I I hear these stories and I fought these battles, and we deserve somebody in this district who is going to fight for us.
1: Angie needed to know that if she was going to run again, the election could have a different
3: outcome. I needed to know that I could win. I looked at a lot of data. I mean, it wouldn't surprise you that as a person who's spent 20 years in business, I looked at turnout data from 2016. I looked at did Democrats all show up? And the answer was they didn't for a number of reasons. I looked at Who turned out on the other side? And the answer was folks who don't typically vote ever turned out. That was a bit of a Trump wave. And then I looked at the third-party candidate in my race. She was a former Democrat who got a little upset with the party and decided she would run as an independent. There were two Democrats on the ballot in 2016. So I wasn't going to run again if I didn't think I could win this thing because there's no use in doing it if you don't believe you can win.
1: When I spoke with Jay Newton-Small about this election season, she said she's worried about what could happen if women get discouraged after November.
4: I worry that if all these women, or many of them, lose, that it will set us back because women tend to not run more than once, right? They get disheartened. I worry that, you know, all these women will run and then become disheartened if they don't win and then never run again, which I think would be a tragic outcome of all of this if that were to happen.
1: Debbie Walsh also advised caution ahead of the midterms. She's the director of the Center for American Women and Politics.
3: We're not going to undo over 250 years of women's underrepresentation in American electoral politics in one election cycle. And my kind of caution is I don't want
4: women to get discouraged. I don't want women to say, oh, well, we tried this in one year. And it didn't all turn around, so now we're walking away. This needs to be for the long haul. We've been talking about
3: that this is a marathon, not a sprint. Our system is designed not to change overnight. I'm hoping that women will be in this for the long haul. Angie decided to give it another shot. For me, it really is the lesson of this cycle that when women run, they need to be prepared to run twice if we ever want to have full representation or equal representation in this country because the average is two-point something for a seat in Congress. And I'll never forget, it was about three days after that last election. And the truth is, I wasn't ready to talk to anybody. And, you know, I was still stunned that the presidential race had turned out the way it had, that the voters of the 2nd Congressional District by 1.8% had gone with my opponent. And I got a call from a congressman in Minnesota, Rick Nolan, up in the 8th congressional district who's retiring this election cycle. And he called me and he said, listen, Angie, I know you're not really ready to be told you got to do this again. It's only been about three days. But he said to me, remember, it took me twice back in the 70s when I first ran for Congress. People forget after all this time that it took me twice. And then he laughed and he said, and hell, it took Colin Peterson four times. Another reason one of our members of Congress from Minnesota. And what was really important and the most meaningful calls that I got after that election were from members of Congress who, who it took twice. These folks would call me up and they'd just encourage me to think about running again.
1: For Angie, the thing that sealed the deal was a distinctive shift of enthusiasm.
3: In those early days of deciding, was I going to run for Congress again, you know, the Women's March was taking place, and a million people filled Washington, and 100,000 people filled the Capitol in St. Paul in Minnesota. And, you know, you looked at what was happening, and to be honest, having lost a tough race, I kept saying, yeah, it's amazing, this is great, but is it sustainable? And I remember distinctly showing up at an event, because even before I filed to run again, I kept showing up at events and there was a little part of my district in the southern part called New Prague. And if I got a hundred votes in New Prague in 2016, I'd be surprised. I showed up for an event down there and I turned up thinking I'd see what five or six people and give a little talk about running for office. And I turned up and there were 100 people in the room, 97 women and three men. And that's the moment I came back and said to my wife, Cheryl, this is real. People are going to be off the sidelines in 2018. People have awakened and that is what we're experiencing this election cycle. Everywhere I go, there are people who have never participated in grassroots American politics before who are there, marching in parades, coming to fundraisers, doing door knocks. It's just amazing. And so when I realized that I believed this level of activism was going to be sustainable and was not going to be contained to just base Democrats, independents, some Republican folks were coming off the sidelines is when I said, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to go again. Here's some background on the district. This district is unique in the sense that from a political point of view, it is Almost even. I mean, there's this 80% suburban district just south of the city of St. Paul, Minnesota. And it's 20% rural with an agriculture economy. And there are this amazing, beautiful small towns. The Minnesota River runs through it. The Mississippi River runs through it. It's got these beautiful bluffs and these beautiful bridge in Hastings. It's just picturesque. I listen a lot, and health care is going to be one of the biggest issues, and is one of the biggest issues for Minnesota families. Even families who have employer-sponsored health insurance, their premiums are going up, their deductibles are going up, especially the cost of prescription drugs. Education is also a big issue. The unemployment rate in my largest county is only 2.9%. So it's not about finding jobs, it's about... Rising wages, uh, people's paychecks aren't going up, and it's about finding good jobs that are going to allow you to move yourself uh, into the middle class. It's mostly service sector jobs. And then finally, I think the last issue that may not be some sexy issue in Washington, but look, we need to invest in our infrastructure in this district. We're never going to have strong rural communities until we have high speed internet in every single home inside this congressional district. It's highways, roads, bridges. We need An interchange up here right off Highway 35 at Elko New Market. Like I said, the issues here are very local.
1: Tori Van Oot is a freelance reporter based in Minneapolis. She's covering Angie's race and she's previously covered political races all over the country for publications including Refinery 29 and the Washington Post. Tori talked to me about the feelings on the ground and what makes this year different.
4: There's a ton of energy in Minnesota in general this year, including in the second district congressional race. The second district, the race between Angie Craig and Jason Lewis, is one of the top races in Minnesota and also one of the top races in the country in terms of being a potential pickup for Democrats and a swing seat this election. And both sides are fighting really hard. What we're seeing in Minnesota is a lot of energy on the Democratic side, in particular in the primaries. We saw a huge turnout. We've seen large voter registration bumps, especially among young people. And there's this real palpable sense of, this is an election that matters, and people are tuning in. These are districts that swung back and forth between the parties. These are voters that don't necessarily vote all Democrat down the ticket or all Republican down the ticket. So both parties and both candidates are fighting really aggressively and spending really aggressively to try to win and to try to make their case to voters. I think one thing that's really different this year is Trump, for one. I mean, Trump came very close to winning Minnesota, which is usually a reliably blue state for Democrats in the presidential election. So I wasn't here covering this race in 2016. I moved here at the start of this year. But... I think that the top line issues and the top line messaging was similar. On one hand, you have Angie Craig is really trying to tie Jason Lewis to Trump, um, especially when it comes to some of the things he said in his past as a radio host. They seem to be even more so than about the issues at this point, almost a referendum on character. One of the biggest factors for voters in an election and for candidates is the name ID name identification. Do people know your name? When you are a first-time candidate, unless you're huge in the community, you have a famous family name, you've run for another office before, voters will not know your name. And even with all the lawn signs everywhere, the commercials, they might not remember it. So one reason why it's important for candidates who lose and still want to serve an office to run again is that that second time around, you've already done a ton of the legwork in terms of voters knowing who you
1: are. The political environment has shifted this election, and Angie's also treating it differently. She says she's being more her authentic self.
3: You don't learn anything when you win. You learn a lot when you fail. And I think that lesson can be applied to politics. It can be applied to business. It can be applied to life. If things don't exactly go your way, spend a lot of time looking at what happened that was out of your control and then What happened that you could have impacted that maybe you didn't? And so I think we're running a different race this time as a result of all that learning. After two years of experience, I've decided this cycle, I'm not editing myself anymore. You know what I mean? I'm not afraid to say what I think ever. I think you're seeing that differently in our communication where I'm just showing up. I'm just being me. I swear sometimes, my kids will tell you, I let a little hell out every once in a while, and so I'm not trying to be by the book. I'm just being me. If voters like that, that's amazing. And some won't, and that's fine. I think I'm just more comfortable being me. I'm more comfortable talking about my family. Every politician who runs talks about their family, and so do I. I'm not running for Congress because I have a wife and four sons. I'm running because I believe I'm qualified to tackle a lot of the biggest issues in this country. But I do have a wife and four sons, and I'm really proud of that, and I'm going to be very open about it with the voters because they deserve to know everything about me and then make a judgment of whether they want me representing them in this Congress.
1: Angie isn't the only candidate who's being more herself. Here's Joe
0: Piazza again. For the first time, women candidates are listening to themselves. They're not taking the advice of all of these old time political hardliners who say, run like a man, act like a man. We're seeing women candidates be their authentic selves, express their genuine views on issues, And they're running campaigns unlike anything we've ever seen before. I don't want to call those campaigns Trumpian because that gives him too much credit. There are a few things that he did, and I think that we have to give him credit for a few things. One, he did galvanize us to learn how to fight. He galvanized a lot of women to run for office. But... He also showed a new way of talking to the electorate that I think is incredibly important. We're seeing women candidates and some male candidates. I mean, I I don't want to completely brush off the male candidates. I mean, I do want to brush them off a little bit, but we're seeing more candidates, but particularly women, being their authentic selves, talking to people like they're actual human beings and connecting on a real and genuine level. And that's what I think is going to help people at the polls come November. I mean, that's why I'm actually optimistic this time. Here's Christina lefebvre Latner.
1: Christina teaches women's and gender studies at California Polytechnic State University.
4: I think that women are being much more truthful and open about their stories. In the past, a lot of campaign strategists had kind of told women, you know, don't talk that much about your personal life. Um, Women try to run like men. And I think that men didn't talk a lot about their personal lives, but what would happen is that women would still get asked about their personal life. Women would always be asked, you know, who's taking care of your children? Do you have this experience? Or there was always this undercurrent of soap opera and drama that would come out with women. Women have always been treated differently when they're running for office. And I don't know if it's a concerted choice for women nowadays, or if it's just the fact that women feel more confident in themselves, but I think it's helping them be more relatable to people. They're coming across as much more honest. And I think that it makes more sense. People connect with women much more because of that, because they don't feel like they're holding back. As more women have stepped up, it feels
3: like change is on the horizon. I'm I'm the mother of four boys. I think that's a society that boys grow up in that's a little bit different for girls is through sports, through other things. And I want girls to experience that too. My kids are unafraid to fail. When they fail, they just get back up and they go again. I saw that in business where men would apply for promotions at a much faster pace than women. And so that's one of the things I tried to do in business and actually formally did it in terms of training and experience of women leaders to teach them to be unafraid to fail, to go for it. You know, It's a moment in time where it's extraordinary. I think about just the number of highly, highly qualified women who've decided that they're going to get into the arena. And the truth is, none of it's going to matter unless we win. And I know that sounds a little bit harsh, but I'm I'm so optimistic that we're going to win.
1: Women like Angie have made the choice to sacrifice their time and privacy in an effort to facilitate change. I know it can feel like we're quite powerless in the face of the dark news that pops up on Twitter or Instagram or wherever you get your news every day. But really, we hold the power. And now is the time to act on it.
3: You know, you may not have done this before. Maybe you're extremely involved in politics. We need your help. Find your local candidate, whether it's Kathy Manning in North Carolina or whether it's Angie Craig in Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District. Our country is depending on you.
1: Next week, we're going to feature another woman who has accomplished an extraordinary amount in the private sector and is now running for office. She's also one of the many candidates this year that comes from a military background.
4: So my name is Chrissy Houlihan. I am 51 years old. I am a Democratic candidate for Congress in Pennsylvania's 6th Congressional District.
3: They're using that military experience
4: and that toughness to their advantage, as they should. I mean, it has been a value added
3: for men for centuries.
1: More on that coming to you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. And if you didn't, let me know let's start a conversation. This movement is all about reaching out to the other, increasing empathy for opposing viewpoints, and sharing in the quest for justice and progress. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan, follow us on Instagram at wmn.media, or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you next week.